Hi, everybody. I'm Mo Bhandari from OrthoEvidence. And here uh, we are this evening with an OrthoEvidence uh, news bulletin of sorts with Dr. Zane Chagla. Dr. Chagla, as you know, is an associate professor at the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. He was last with us two weeks ago uh, doing a podcast that uh, has since had a considerable amount of interest. And we have Dr. Chagla here again this evening. Uh, our members and our users are really interested in is getting a sense of what's been happening uh, in the last two weeks since our last podcast. And keeping in mind now that the WHO estimates suggest that there are 800 cases of coronavirus worldwide. And I'm just curious, we have such a rapidly changed landscape and I'm sure two weeks may sound like months to you in terms mm -hmm. of what's happened. And I'm curious from your perspective, what is new? So uh, the first thing, as you mentioned, is the epidemiology has completely changed. And so this was a virus that two weeks ago was, a, was being seen starting to emerge in Europe uh, and starting to emerge in the United States. And those outbreaks have become major outbreaks. So the case counts in Italy, Germany, France, UK, Portugal, and Spain uh, uh, have, have progressed significantly. The death counts, unfortunately, have progressed significantly. And we're seeing a major outbreak in the United States where the number of cases in the United States is larger than any other country in the world, including China, which was the epicenter of this outbreak. Um, we're seeing uh, exponential growth in these countries, although some slowing in Italy, which was hit first. Um, and so we're seeing this virus penetrate into communities. Uh, in Canada, there has been growth uh, and community spread. Uh, and our epidemiology in Canada has been in not only travelers from those areas of the world, but people in the community who have no identifiable risk factors. Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of our, our mortality amongst those in long-term care. Uh, and unfortunately, these long-term care patients are probably the first sign of some transmission within the community as, as they're, they're not obviously in the community very often. So they're, 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 the virus is being brought into to these centers and affecting these patients and unfortunately uh, leading to their, their demises. So we're seeing spread in every province in Canada, every territory other than Nunavut. Uh, and uh, and th things will continue to progress uh, 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 in that state. Uh, in the last two weeks, we've also seen obviously monumental changes in the way we do society. It feels like it's been ages that this is this has happened, but uh, we're seeing monumental efforts to essentially flatten that curve. So to really spare the health system strain of a large number of these cases reporting to the door, and really trying to temper that growth of cases into a manageable resource environment where everyone can get the appropriate care to deal with their illness if they do require hospitalization, critical care, or ventilation. Um, can I ask Go you ahead. a question on that? Yeah. So a big issue that, and a big question that comes up often is, how extreme do you have to be to truly flatten that curve? So, you know, there must be examples around the world where, yeah, so for example, what is considered to be you know, best practice now um, for countries that are looking to really take a real serious, serious look at, uh, at limiting and, and risk mitigation? So, I mean, the, the best case scenario as we're seeing what happened in Wuhan, uh, where they were the epicenter of the outbreak and went into very, very extreme physical distancing. Uh, they essentially tempered their epidemic down to 
dozens to to less than five cases a day in in some days. So um, their extremity of uh, social distancing has uh, um, led to a significant reduction. There's a Lancet study that came out a couple of days ago that suggests a 50% reduction in spread from that type of social distancing. And Zane, now, can, can I ask you, Zane, like, like when you say that, like, can you be a little more specific? Like, does that mean like, what, like for example, we're seeing India uh, saying mm-hmm. that we're perfect zone. People will not leave their apartments. Mm-hmm. And people will not leave. Are we talking that sort of? Uh, yeah, that, that, that was how, how extreme it was. But the, mind you, there's differences in society in, in terms of that population versus ours. People um, tend to live in communities of, of housing. And so... Um, people are more reliant on other people for things like groceries or coming in so people can really maintain that distancing in their day-to-day lives versus a society like ours where we're very independent even though we can distance within our own accommodations or housing we still have to go out and do our errands ourselves in that sense so um, you know that the, the distancing we see in Wuhan is probably not what we can achieve here but at least we are trying to achieve some degree of it and again doing 80% of that probably still has some tempering effects. Uh, where Wuhan saw a 50% reduction in its spread, we're probably going to see perhaps a bit more because we started early, but but not those numbers in the midst of the outbreak in that sense. Okay, very good. And an, another area of key concern um, is, you know, in the hospital environment themselves, what big change mm-hmm. have you seen in the last few weeks in the hospital environment? Really from the point of view of the healthcare provider and what measures are they taking in the hospital? And obviously, we represent a new ortho evidence, a group of surgical, uh, surgical mm-hmm. and physiotherapists, and a number of other healthcare providers. So I'm sure they're quite interested in that. So, I, from a hospital standpoint, there's been uh, a certain amount of interest, obviously, in modeling and trying to develop staffing models, care models that predict the worst case scenario. So, where um, you know, there are too many patients for just the providers that are specialized to deal with them, uh, how, to, how to integrate other providers and how to deal with these patients, um, how to safely transport patients. They're, they're every from beginning to end in terms of even the resuscitation, the ethical considerations around patient care in terms of ventilation and critical care and offering of resources in those situations. Uh, and, and really just that scale up approach. Um, there's been considerations about personal protective equipment, and so uh, ensuring right patients have right point of contact. Uh, and there has obviously been some controversy around this in the sense that every society's guidelines don't line up equally. Everyone's personal definition of what's considered aerosol generating doesn't line up diff- doesn't line up the same. And there's even um, variation country to country in terms of that. So the definitions from the Centers for Disease Control are very different than the recommendations from the Public Health Agency of Canada. Um, and, and that, again, is risk tolerance and, and, and best available evidence. Um, so those have been really the big two hospital issues, uh, as well as just models to ensure that the right number of people are, are caring for patients. So establishing kind of COVID-positive areas in the hospital to deal with those patients, establishing um, centralized teams for resuscitation and intubation, uh, those types of things to, to ensure that the right people, the seniorest people, and the most calm and skilled people 
are providing care, whereas the people that are less trained are not providing that care for the sake of them um, uh, having mistakes with PPE or having mistakes with transmission. And as, and as far as evidence tells us, the virus itself is, is, is an aerosol. It's droplet transferred. There's been mm -hmm. some discussion around, oh, it may be able to transfer through air. Mm -hmm. Any evidence around that? So there, there's a couple of studies that came out that are putting, I would say, that are putting some controversy into that. So the prior evidence to date really dealt with SARS uh, and, and the, the risk of transferring SARS. A good case control study that was done by Mark Loeb with our group here at McMaster that looked at nurses that got SARS uh, and looked at their N95 versus droplet masks, there's no difference in between. Uh, and, and a similar study that was done, N95 masks and uh, respirators, uh, sorry, surgical masks for influenza, where they actually did look at the other human coronaviruses, which aren't very pathogenic, and similar rates between the two groups. So, so very similar backgrounds. Um, there was a study that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine about a week and a half ago that used an artificial aerosolizer the point of this study was actually not to see if the virus was airborne, but it was to see how stable it was on airborne droplets and how stable it was on the surfaces those droplets get onto, basically. So um, the, the model was not similar to what would be with a cough or a sneeze. Right. It was a model that you would see with a bronchoscopy or an intubation in that sense. Okay. Um, the, the, so, so a lot of people took it as the virus is airborne, and certainly it is airborne if you put it through an air aerosolizer to okay. make it airborne, but that's not a human model. Okay. Uh, there, was, there, there was another study at the University of Nebraska that I think was just printed a couple of days ago that did air sampling and found the virus in air samples. It's important to note that study didn't really say their technique of sampling, so whether or not they picked up large droplets or small droplets. It was very low-level RNA that was picked up, so whether or not that was just contamination of the device or, or, or the machine, as we know, molecular signatures tend to be very sticky in PCR assays. And when they looked back and tried to culture the virus, they couldn't. And so whether or not you're picking a little bit of RNA up in the environment from shed or dying virus versus this being pathogenic virus. And interestingly, you can look for the same type of literature around things like MRSA or Staph aureus in the environment. And yes, you can pick up DNA of Staph aureus in the air, but it doesn't mean we're walking around the hospital with an airborne mask or people with staph aureus infections too. Got it. So that point around the whole concept of masks and and, mm -hmm. and the concept of a community wearing masks, there's been a lot of mm. you know, and, um, discussion, I should say, like in this discussion, probably to some degree may have evidence, may just be rumor mm -hmm. that's you know, built up. But one area has been this meme around saying that we should be you know wearing masks, the whole community should wear masks. And in fact, mm. we're wearing masks, everyone. Um, mm -hmm. Safer. And in fact, they said pillowcases and talking about wearing t-shirts and, you know, with bandana. Is there any truth to this? Is there any, is there any evidence that would suggest that would be a strategy? So where this, this comes from is the country, so Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, where the, and South Korea, where the outbreaks were much more tempered and tapered than, than Italy and what we're seeing in Europe. And one of the excuses is universal masks, which it's hard to argue it didn't play a role, but there were other concepts. They were screening aggressively. There were major travel restrictions. There was actually a lot of use of technology and in tracking individuals and contacts. And so the, all, that whole bundle of things probably led to uh, a significant number of uh, uh, community-based interventions that brought, brought the rates down. Um, the masks, 
you know, there is a, there is a biologic concept of them for sure that if you're around that you're not coughing, uh, you're not picking up people's cough secretions. And if you're coughing, the mask might blunt some of your cough too as well for the environment. Um, for us, I think there, there are resource issues with masks. For people in the community, they're donning and doffing of masks also could introduce infection in that sense too as well. People aren't being appropriate with things. Uh, and uh, there is actually an interesting DMJ study that was done a few years ago around this cloth concept. So using cloth or homemade masks, the humidity concepts in those masks, and so they followed nurses around as compared to regular masks and looked at their influenza rates. The cloth masks, especially with the high humidity that, that was from water, from moisture from the mouth, led to 97% of particles filtering through and a significant rise in influenza-like illnesses as compared to surgical masks in that population. So um, the, the concept of any mask is better than no mask is probably not there. The surgical masks might offer a little bit of benefit, but in the grand scheme of things, all those other community-based interventions are probably the biggest bang for the buck in terms of reducing loads in the community. And there's probably a lot of confounding here too, right? So people mm -hmm. are doing something without adjusting for all the other factors. As exactly, you exactly. Okay, and maybe just one more thing before uh, we, we let you uh, go for the evening. And thanks again for all of this. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been a lot of discussion in the operating room, mm -hmm. uh, especially among some of our surgical colleagues around, you know, um, what positive protective equipment they need, and more importantly, the concept of photo disinfection, the concept of UV light decontamination, mm -hmm. are these potential tools that you know should become regular um, in COVID, uh, you know, COVID positive patients, or or is that you know founded in evidence? So, not not necessarily. Remember, we've been doing ORs. The way we clean, the way we terminate clean ORs or clean ORs after cases, right, is to prevent surgical infections, right? right. That is our big thing to do. So right. we're trying to prevent viral infections. We're trying to prevent bacterial infections post-op. Right. So the terminal cleaning is enhanced. Um, you know, there is some look at using UV and photo disinfectants as part of this terminal cleans of rooms of positive COVID patients. The jury's still out. I, I think a lot of people do think it might add a little bit more. But for routine care in a routine case, I don't think it offers a significant amount of benefit in that sense. Sure. Uh, and again, similarly, the, the, the biggest thing is just making sure patients going into those ORs are identified with COVID, if they have risk factors or symptoms compatible with COVID or tested for COVID, uh, and, and really treating every patient, at least making sure that you do a risk assessment for every patient in terms of the appropriate amount of PPE that you're going to use with that. But we have processes in place for ORs to, to prevent the spread of respiratory infections. We do lung surgeries on patients with tuberculosis. So, you know, the, the way we deal with the ORs, the ventilation in the ORs, and the cleaning of ORs is optimized for the spread of infectious disease. Very good. I can't thank you enough for spending this uh, time with us today. Um, and we'll be sure to touch base with you again, hopefully, hopefully with much better news as we move. I, just one final point. Do you feel uh, in Canada specifically, where, where, where we're hosting this particular um, uh, evening, mm -hmm. right, podcast, are we seeing a flattening? Are, is there hope ahead? There's, there's some modeling coming out of BC uh, and a little bit of Ontario suggesting that the numbers aren't as bad. We've had some issues in Ontario with the testing numbers, and so we have a three or four day lag in that. 
And so as, as we're catching up, we're seeing more cases, but that's actually a reflection of three or four days ago. Um, but there may be some of that. A lot of us are looking at our own internal models and provincial models and seeing how our numbers line up. Uh, and, and so there is early signs of that. It's still much too early to say whether or not this is going to be the progressive flattening the curve or there's going to be an exponential phase. But I think in a week or two, we'll have a better sense of, of where we are in, in the curve, for sure. So nothing else, a bit of cautious optimism, I hope. A bit of cautious optimism, exactly. Right. Dr. Shagler, thank you so much and have a good evening. No problem. Take care.